0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Just a quick note before we get into today's show. I want to talk to you about an opportunity. I know a lot of people who listen to this show, they have their own business, they have their own podcasts, they have their own stuff going on. And friend of the show, a lot of you are probably familiar with him, Jason Stapleton, he is someone who has as you know he's changed the uh the format of his show of what he does and he really specializes now in helping entrepreneurs, helping business people to make more money. And he's offering a course that uh it's I think it's next week actually and what it's all about is teaching self promotion. Now, me personally and I know a lot of people agree with me on this, it's hard to self promote, man. I have several businesses. I have this podcast, The Lines of Liberty, and I, I'm not good at talking about myself in person or even if I'm a guest on a podcast. I'm not good about you know bringing up the things I'm doing and, and talking about it in an exciting way. It really is an art form and it's a learned skill, and Jason is very, very good at teaching it. So what I'm going to do is direct you guys to a link where you can learn more about it. Just go to stapletonagency.com slash liberty check it out it's going to be an awesome event and you don't want to miss it just one more time that's stapletonagency all one word dot com slash liberty
1: we are born free and we will die free the time in between though that's complicated In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential.
0: Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host,
1: John Oderman.
0: Welcome in. Welcome to another great edition of Finding Freedom here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Guys, I'm excited Really excited for today's show. We're going to be talking about COVID, the coronavirus, talking about, talking about vaccines, and I got a doctor. We got a doctor in the house, Dr. Eric Larson. I'll introduce him in a minute, but before we get into all that stuff, guys, got a couple of things that I want to talk about. For one thing, I'm really excited about this upcoming weekend. We got the, uh, the Mises Caucus event here in Pittsburgh. I'll be attending it. Uh, Dave Smith will be there, Scott Horton, Anthony Samerhoff, all kinds of people. It's going to be an awesome event. It coincides with the uh, Libertarian Party Convention, Libertarian Party Pennsylvania uh, Convention in Pittsburgh. So it's honestly the first weekend we've ever had in Pittsburgh with a legit Libertarian event, and there's two of them. So it's going to be wild times. Looking forward to that. I know a lot of uh, Lions of Liberty fans and Pride members are going to be coming out. Can't wait to meet you guys. So very excited for that. I I know that there's also, I think, a a Mises event going on in California. I think uh, Brian's going to be at that. And uh, speaking of Brian, we checked out uh, last Wednesday's episode of Electric Liberty Land. Awesome episode, man. He's just been crushing it. If you haven't, go back, check that out. If you missed Monday's episode, uh, our flagship program with Mark, go back, check that out, guys. Every, I mean... What We've put together here, and you know, I'll, I'll brag on us. I've, I've been learning about self promotion from Jason Stapleton. I, I do not think there honestly is a better libertarian podcast out there than us. I mean, each of us separately, sure, there's some shows that can beat us, maybe, but you put the three of our shows together in a package variety show format that we have. I, I don't think anything stands close to us right now. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm not, but. And just one more thing I wanted to say before we get started here, guys, if you guys have not listened to Burning Daylight uh, with friend of the show, Matt McKinley, a podcast about being a real life cowboy, dealing with that cowboy shit, just cutting up and having a good time on these podcasts, just super entertaining podcasts. And I mean, the characters, the stories, unique, one of a kind content. So check it out. Burning Daylight with Matt McKinley. And with that, let's get rolling right into today's show. My guest today on Finding Freedom is Dr. Eric Larson. He is a clinical assistant professor of anesthesiology at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Uh, He is also in private practice and is board certified in anesthesiology, where he specializes in ambulatory and perioperative acute pain, see if I'm saying that right, and general anesthesia. Eric is the host of the Paradox podcast. It's a fun and lively discussion with a couple of docs on the practice of medicine. It's occasionally serious, usually lighthearted, and accidentally informative. I stole that from the uh, little iTunes about there. And uh, Eric, welcome to Finding Freedom.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's actually perioperative medicine, so... uh... Anyway, that's that's how you pronounce that. It's funny because I I my son is fourteen and I always tease him about what I do at work and I'll tell him I do what ERCP, which people might have heard of, and it's actually uh, endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography. But no one actually ever says that except I do just to to mess with them. So anyway, so we do all that sort of things. Medicine we charge twice as much if we use the, the proper medical terms.
0: Yeah, if, if and if the patients can't pronounce the words, that means it's worth it, right?
1: It's more Absolutely. Expensive. <laughs>
0: So Erica, I wanted to, I wanted to have you on for a while and uh, I finally reached out throughout this uh I, I well I think if I should say first of all, I think you've been on Mark's show which is our Monday program and also on Brian's show Electric Liberty, Liberty Land. So now this is the the trifecta, so this is bound to happen eventually, I'm sure. But uh what I was saying was, you know, through this whole past year the uh SARS uh COVID-2 COVID-19 um pandemic we've been going through. I've really been interested, uh, since you have such a uh, better knowledge base than I do to talk about this stuff, but I think more importantly, the way you've talked about it in a very nonpartisan way, just sort of just giving the uh, the raw facts, the raw, the raw data to uh, a lot of your live videos that I've watched on Facebook, which I think are also your podcasts. So if you just want to talk about that sort of how, how you've approached the uh, the pandemic in, in that manner.
1: Yeah, I think uh, to begin with, I'm not really very partisan. I've, I've tried the Republican Party. It didn't fit. And uh, I was there pretty much as long as my friend Justin Amash was a part of it. And then you sort of wore out your welcome pretty quickly, uh, even before he was done there as well. And so I, I've i never been very partisan. I'm Definitely my politics are libertarian. And so I tend not to have a, a home. And so when the both sides start yelling at each other, I can easily tune it out. And I think you probably are in the same boat too. Like you kind of see the um, the nonsense that they, they spout and that it's mainly, you know, whatever the other person's not saying is what my position is. And so it's been made very strange sort of following this debate, I guess I we'll call it for the last year and a half. And and for me, from a clinical standpoint or at least scientific standpoint, it's been a process of discovery and, and learning because as an anesthesiologist, we don't know much about immunology or, you know, epidemiology, infectious disease. I mean, I give antibiotics during a surgery, but it's pretty much always the same one. <laughs> so it's, not, it's pretty much unthinking. I mean, I know the basics from medical school, but I don't know a lot of specifics. And so I can talk to people who are in the field and I understand the lingo and I can understand sort of the basic things, the concepts that we talk about, risk benefit uh, when it comes to uh, trying to figure out what to do. My I'm, my wife is a pediatrician, so I know a lot about vaccinations and sort of I hear about us all the time. We have discussions, uh, I'll mm-hmm. call them. All the time about vaccinations and what are good strategies, not. And anyway, so I've I have some sort of like knowledge base that I use. And I'm I think just generally just a curious person. And since I'm not partisan, I'm not beholden to sort of one camp, if we'll call it that at this point. I tend to err in the side of trusting regular people and trusting myself and my instincts and common sense versus just trusting someone just because they have a title. And so I wouldn't expect anyone to trust everything I say because I have MD after my name, nor would I expect um, just because someone's a government official that trusts everything they say. And I, wouldn't, and I would hope that people find ways of understanding things that make sense to them, but also that some people recognize that this is something that no one's ever gone through before, no matter what kind of expert you are. No one has lived through this this sort of scenario with the pandemic. And so we have to recognize that there has to be a lot of humility. And there are a lot of things i have been wrong about with this, or what I expected with this this pandemic. I think I've been pretty open and honest about it and open and honest about what I don't know but also I think there's a lot of stuff that people say with certainty that they just, they have no way of knowing. And I think I, I like to think that I try and approach it where I have again, some intellectual curiosity and recognition that I might be wrong, but also willingness to call out the people who are just, you know, full of them, full of it, which is there are plenty of.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, the, the mantra now is, you know, trust the experts, trust the experts, which is dangerous. Um, Experts, their opinions should be should be taken and should be analyzed. And there's different experts saying different things. So it's really they're not saying trust the ex- experts. They're saying trust our approved experts and ignore these other experts over here. But uh, it's it's uh, it's it's a difficult time to sift through all this. Um, I kind of wanted to start out painting the uh, the picture here for for COVID 19 and what I've seen from your work. I think the first one thing you've talked about—I don't know when you first started um, mentioning this aspect of it—that SARS-CoV-2 uh, will eventually evolve into a pretty much a strain of the common cold. And I've seen you see, see, uh, say that. I've seen other people say the the same thing. What what is that? What's that based upon? Is there? I mean, is that? I mean, it's not purely a guess. I mean, the the current uh, you know coronavirus strains that are the common cold, I guess they likely did a similar thing to this. They started off more extreme is that the the thought process?
1: yeah, I think you know when you look at i when it comes to this sort of thing, obviously no one can know right, and so it's only a guess. It really is actually a, a conjecture that well this will end up a common cold and that'd be something that we sort of are used to having around so when I think when it looks when you look at coronavirus the the question is really. What can we look at through history and have some sort of insight into what might happen in the future? It is absolutely conjecture to know what's going to happen with this this SARS-CoV-2. This is the fifth coronavirus that has boot transferred to humans that we know of, where actually humans can replicate it. There, are, coronaviruses are very common in the environment. All sorts of animal species have it, but rarely do they work in multiple mammals. And so that when they do, that's when you have problems. And so uh, right now, this SARS-CoV-2 is going to be present in. I think we think it can be replicated in mice and mink. There are probably some other mammals. And so that suggests that it will become endemic, which means it's never going to go away. And so if you think that this is never going to go away, do we have other examples of this? And this is when I've spoken to my friend, Dr. David Graham, who's an infectious disease physician in mm-hmm. Montana. We, t- we talk about, have we seen this before, right? So the way to sort of understand the future is to understand the past as best you can. And so OC43 is the most recent as far as there you know ways of looking at how much a viruses sort of change over time, and figure out how many mutations or whatever, and so they can suggest that probably around the late eighteen hundreds, OC forty three, that traveled from cows to humans probably in the late eighteen hundreds. You can see news reports from then, and you see evidence that it existed at that point. There's other sort of ways of figuring this out, but at the time, you read the reports, it was not as bad as what we're seeing now for sure. But certainly, people got pretty sick. Some people died, and over time, this now becomes sort of the ubiquitous virus, and so. It is probable, I think, in probably more than 50% that this will actually turn into uh, a virus that if you're young and exposed to it, you sort of develop T cell immunity or some sort of immunity that protects you in the future exposures while you're an adult. If you're an adult, you've never had an opportunity to see this particular strain. And so it's likely to be a little harder on your immune system and uh, for your body to respond to it. I'm kind of dumb. And so I like trying to use analogies in medicine that maybe... Are suggestive of this process. Mm -hmm. And I think the chickenpox is a good one that most people are familiar with. So if you get the chickenpox when you're six, you get the chickenpox, you're sick for a couple weeks or whatever, and then you're okay. If you're a 60 year old person who gets chickenpox for the first time as an exposure, most people know you can get really, really sick and potentially die from it. And so I, I kind of tend to think that's a little bit what this is, that you have Mm -hmm. no previous exposure and uh, at a young age, we don't really understand a lot of immunology. And so I think even you ask the immunologists, like, you know, can you explain immunology? The first answer would be, well, it's complicated, right? And so I think I think there's a lot that goes on that we don't understand and that's okay. But again, I think you just look at what has happened before and see what would happen likely in the future. You look at kids right now and they're 12, 13, 14 year olds. Most of them, if you do serology studies, will have shown exposure, multiple exposures to all these Common cold vi- varieties, adenoviruses, rhinoviruses, coronaviruses, parainfluenza peri- viruses—all these things cause various types of colds and inflammations and reactions from people. Uh, so they've been exposed multiple times while they're young, and we don't normally think of the cold killing people because that's why we call it the common cold—it's not a big deal. We wouldn't bother developing a virus or a vaccine for it because, you know, you just get sick, you feel kind of lousy for a while. People who have asthma, might get more sick than others, or whatever. And if you get really old and you're frail, you might be, you might succumb to them. But essentially, uh, the viruses are just going to be kind of a nuisance. But probably at some point, when it first jumped from the animal, another mammal species into humans, it probably is more than a nuisance. We don't know because we have no recorded history of this. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think about what would have happened in 1890s when the first coronavirus came across. Would it have been, and they have the knowledge that we have now, maybe then you know, people would have... Freaked out, sort of like they are now, and look for ways to fix things. I, I mean, I don't know, uh, but it's. But I think a key thing is to say the coronavirus is not like the flu virus. They are totally different types of viruses, and that's why the approach to combating and things like that is has to be recognized as different as well. So that's another important point.
0: So, so when it comes to to go back to kids and kids not really getting. I mean, there have been kids that have gotten pretty sick from this, obviously, but for the most part, kids are kids are not really. Impacted, don't have bad outcomes from coronavirus from this version of the uh, coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2. Um, so, why why is the approach, or what are some of the reasons why why would the approach be different than chickenpox? Where you know, we, with chickenpox, you really don't worry about your kid getting chickenpox. Often there were when I was a kid, there were chickenpox parties, or if your brother got chickenpox, the so your, your mom tries to get the whole family to get chickenpox. Um, now I know there's a little difference with, with this. You don't want to get the kids sick, and then the kids infect, uh, you know, affect the adults. But with regards to like school, uh, do you think that we could have maybe set up a, a better model to get kids back in school, being that they're they're not in a, you know, danger of getting really ill from this?
1: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I think part of that is, and I won't put a lot of blame on people because. You know, we haven't experienced this particular virus and sort of what it causes in the disease process. People would be much more freaked out about this if it had, if it even was as dangerous as the flu for children. I mean, you'd have a lot more kids in the hospital, you have a lot more deaths, because uh, basically no one has any basic underlying immunity. And uh, but that's not the case with SARS-CoV-2. I mean, I think with the variants, you're probably seeing higher uh, likelihood of transmission with younger children, which has changed the game a little bit as far as transmission, and maybe they get a little bit sicker. But right now we still have a disease that pretty much primarily affects old people. I mean, that's the the main target, but I think a lot of the strategy makes sense in the sense that if you look at prior infections and the main one we look at is because one we deal with every year is the flu and the major vector for transmitting flu in a community is actually through the schools. You'll see this when there's a winter break, suddenly the flu goes away in the community. Kids come back to school, flu takes off again. And so it was I think a rational sort of thought like, well, we have a bunch of kids stuck together. If you're knowing who was a teacher, you know, you, they know these kids get them sick all the time, right? Kids, especially young children, all they do is have their nose running all the time, right? All winter long, right? They have one cold after another. They're hardly ever okay. And so it's not, it wasn't irrational, I think, to sort of close things down. I mean, after a while, it became apparent that that was not the case. It was pretty clear by fall that the that schools was not where the major spread was is certainly with you know whether what do you think whatever you think of the um uh the interventions to try and control spread with masks and things like that whether they're effective or not I don't know and I don't pretend to know but either way there just wasn't a lot of transmission to school so I think we probably could have opened up a lot sooner I mean my son's been in high school the whole time except when I, my governor shut the, shut us down and they've had really no spread within their high school at all and those are older kids too
0: but Wait, anyway so high schools have been open in Michigan really
1: uh, well I Yes. It just depends where you are. Yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of like uh, if you're in a large urban area, there tends not to be. And then the suburban areas are or aren't. I mean, the where my son would have gone to school, so he's in a charter school. So I think that's mm-hmm. important to point out. Charter schools and private schools have been pretty much open for the most part. And then the public schools, even the suburban areas, it's random, right? Like They're off again, on again, whatever. Or And so it's really just been sort of hodgepodge the urban areas like uh, i'm you near know, outside of grand rapids city of detroit you know grand rapids a couple other large urban centers have been totally closed down all year and they haven't bothered trying or they open up and kids still learn virtually when they go into the schools which is totally insane but you know they hire <laughs> teachers to go or what do they call them para teachers or something it's like a paralegal you know the teacher someone just goes into them, you know, you know help your them.
0: podcast name there yeah right right
1: exactly <laughs> uh so uh, but anyway i so I don't think it was like a totally crazy idea to think that we need to, con- one of the ways to control community spread of a virus that we have to try and buy time because we didn't know what was going to happen. And certainly the reports out of Italy at the time. And then, you know, New York city was really bad and people didn't know what they're doing. There was no protective equipment for healthcare workers. And it was, it was kind of a scary time because really no one knew what was going on. And I mm-hmm. think, um, and so I think a lot of those reactions were, were not totally irrational. I mean, by the time we hit summer or, or fall, it seemed like they're, kind of silly. But anyway, I think that was the main strategy. The thought was kids are going to be a vector because they are a vector for most diseases. I mean, kids are just kind of walking, as my immunology professor said in medical school, they're pretty much walking Petri dishes. And so they, you know, if something's going to happen, they're going to bring it into the house or take it and take it wherever. It just, for whatever reason, it has not been the case for this, this coronavirus. And, um, and maybe it's not for other ones too. I don't know, but I know parents know they get their kids, get them sick all the time. And so it's, it could be coronaviruses too, but for whatever reason, it just hasn't been the case with this virus.
0: Yeah, it's been it's been interesting, and, and my daughter's been. We've been lucky that um, she's she's five years old now. She has her last day of preschool tomorrow. Graduates on uh, on Wednesday, but they've been open. Her preschool's been open, not that the entire time, but since last fall, they've remained open, and they do have some masking inside and stuff like that. But when they're outside, they don't have to wear masks. But uh, that, that that's been great. That she's been able to go through preschool since I know, you know, it's the same thing in Pennsylvania. It's kind of area by area, school district by school district, type how it breaks down. Kind of just all politics, which is which is not good.
1: Right. Well, and that's the that's been the most frustrating thing about this completely. Right. It's because you have people and sides, and and I would say the people on both sides are kind of acting crazy. And, you know, maybe you'd say people on the left are a little bit crazier because they're just insisting on in not letting go of this uh, of this pandemic. Uh, but I feel like people, the same people who say, well, COVID-19 is not real, or it's just the same as the flu as far as it's how de- deadly and dangerous it is. I mean, I don't th- I don't know how you can look at the evidence and, and say that that's the case. Maybe you could argue, well, because no one's ever had coronavirus, that if no one had ever had any sort of flu, it'd be just as bad. I don't know. I guess you could make that argument. Um, but uh i th- it has been frustrating it but it also has been a puzzle right i mean if you kind of take away the noise from from the political sides and i think the fact that happened in election year was a really bad thing with a guy who's extremely right had this happened in 2019 or 2021 it would have been i think entirely different sort of outcome and sort of how we would have approached this i think because i think people were op- using it opportunistically to really drive agendas and and to win you know political power i think yeah. is been part of the problem
0: just to interject quickly with with trump i think you he was he's not built he was not built for uh handling a pandemic whichever way you look at it he was not built for it i I don't know if joe biden is better but i mean i i I don't i don't like joe biden's policies any better but trump did not handle it in a uh in in a good fashion he fumbled every everything that he could do he did wrong
1: like yeah, people. well, I th- he you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, you look at the the bureaucracy, they the, you know, the CDC, the only thing they have to do is try and prevent infectious diseases and they did they've basically done everything wrong in this entire uh, endeavor. And they're still making bad decisions now. Same thing with the FDA. And Trump is a guy who was a guy who just was trying to get attention and he likes controversy. He's not really a deep thinker obviously. That was pretty clear. And, you know, in a time when everyone there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear, the last thing you need is someone like throwing wood on the fire, right? I mean, he was the exact opposite kind of person you'd want. I mean, even Biden might have been better, even though he's confused and doesn't know where he is. I think he would have at least provided. He wouldn't have at least been in, really ignited this, the flames, and that was, you know, part Trump, part media, whatever you can argue. But it's good point. Uh, yeah, media, I think that probably was probably
0: media at least half half responsible.
1: I mean, they fed off each other, right? He was successful because of the media. The media was successful because of him. The more controversy and things they could they could rile up, they they both won, right? He got notoriety and fame, and they got ratings. And so, anyway, I think that's it was a, it was like a perfect storm of, of for the twenty twenty.
0: It was, yeah, it was uh, something I never want to see or live through again from a political standpoint. So, getting less controversial, just kidding. Let's turn the page and talk about vaccines. So, yeah. um, just starting out, just talking about adults. I, you, I, I don't want to characterize your opinion but it, it seems like you're you're generally in, in favor of uh of adults getting vaccinated
1: i so i yeah i would say in, if you just pick generally so i'm vaccinated my wife's vaccinated my daughter's in college who hasn't had COVID or vaccinated is vaccinated my son who's a freshman in high school he'll get vaccinated now we're a little bit more pro-vaccine probably just in general because my wife's a pediatrician and that's what she does uh i guess i don't you know it's Medicine comes down to risks and benefits, and I think you know there there are absolutely unknown risks for things that you that we don't fully understand. Like I think the vaccine, as far as long term effects, we don't really know what the long term effects are. There are lots of things we don't know the long term effects of anything, and statistics unfortunately are either there there. There's a percentage of whatever may happen, but ultimately for you at zero or a hundred, you just don't know which one it is. Right? It's either not going to happen or it's going to happen, mm-hmm. and so. I think, you know, when you look at COVID-19 and you look at the disease itself, it's clear that if you're old, you're at much higher risk of bad things happening. Even if you don't die and you say with mortality rates, I don't know, 7% or whatever it is, um, it you get there are other kinds of problems. You're like down for three months and you're not breathing well. You're feeling miserable. I always say tell people like when they ask me if I'm going to get I say, well, you know, I get the flu vaccine and maybe I'm a bad person, but I don't get it to protect the community. I get it because I don't like getting the flu and i've had the flu and it's pretty lousy and i don't like being out of work for a couple of weeks and just feeling just miserable. and so that's why i get the vaccine i i was very confident with the the mrna vaccine that it was um, a pretty good vaccine it, that it's effective which is a mir- miracle i mean it i think you know in many ways libertarians should almost be like celebrating the free market here and the the technological advances we have and the the wealth that our country has that we can develop something like this. uh you know so and are, that-
0: are are you able to just to interject there And I know it's probably way too detailed for a podcast like this, but in layman's terms, are you able to describe the difference between a MNRa vaccine and a traditional vaccine?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, about the best I could do, John, is actually do it in layman's terms, since (laughs) I can't (laughs) advance physiology. But I mean, I understand it generally speaking. So, most vaccines are going to. Well, I guess we'll back up. A vaccine is designed for you to get an immunological response to an immunity from some sort of pathogen virus, or virus or bacteria. And so it, it is a way of mimicking and so sort of basically tricking your body into making an immune response so that you have future immunity if you get exposed to that pathogen. So for instance, like you get a measles, mumps, rubella vaccination when you're young, you know, baby, you get a couple, a series of that to prevent, to produce antibodies for measles, mumps, or rubella. So what happens, and there are different types of vaccines. Most of the vaccines traditionally have either a live activated or an inactivated particle of some protein of the virus or bacteria, whatever it is you're getting vaccinated from, that will cause your immune system to say, Hey, that's something foreign. I'm gonna produce some antibodies and I'm gonna and then my antibodies system so I'll have this cascade and you may get a reaction of some sort of inflammation or some sort of like, you know, feeling tired or sore throat or something like that, or sore arm. That's an inflammatory reaction. You'll then develop antibodies, you'll have some of your immune cells, the T cells have some memory you'll have some b cells as well that are involved in the antibody production and they will have some memory so that the next time they see this they'll right away say hey i know that's foreign and that is you know measles or whatever mm-hmm. and then it produces antibody and prevents you from getting the cascade of the disease whatever it is and there are inactivated ones which means it's just like a part of the virus there might be an activated one in which it gives you a very weakened one of a part of the virus because we can you know modify it so that Used to have to draw them in cell cultures, but uh, so that it's just like it's not really able to get you really sick unless you're immunocompromised. And so, those are some people who get the vaccination to get really sick because they get an actual infection, even though that wasn't meant to. Uh, the messier RNA is different in that it it basically does cause the same reaction, essentially, except instead of having, uh, except it mimics an actual viral infection a lot better than the the vaccines that you might give, like with a like the Johnson Johnson would be a good example. So, that's like they give you. Adenovirus, which is from I think chimpanzee or something like that, and that actually they just flood you with tons of these viruses. All those proteins around your body creates immune reaction. Where the messenger RNAs, they actually deliver. They have a, they have fat basically surrounding a very small particle that's some RNA, which is which is a code. It's basically like um, a blueprint for making stuff. It gets into the cells because it's just very small and it's got uh, it's fat. It's lipid soluble. It gets into your cells, and then cells are basically tricked. And whenever they get RNA, they say, oh, I got to do this. And so they're, I mean, cells are not that sophisticated. They just kind of do what they're told, the information, their, sort of the rule book they get. And they start making these proteins. They're making proteins, in this case, a spike protein, which is what's used by the SARS-CoV-2 in order to attach to your cells to get into the cells. And so normally what a SARS-CoV-2 does, or the, the coronavirus that we think of, it attaches your cell, it gets in, it basically takes over your cell functions, and it just starts producing more viruses. It, and then- What your body does eventually is it recognizes that that cell is evil. It's producing the virus and it kills those cells. I mean, your cells are all, your body's always killing its own cells, cancer cells, you know, foreign cells, cells that are defective, old and, you know, broken down and stuff like that. And so essentially what this does is it, it mimics that sort of process, except it's not actually causing entire, uh, it's not causing the actual production of a virus. So you can't actually get sick per se. You just produce those proteins it doesn't get into your cell nucleus, so it's not like changing DNA or anything like that. It just, it just sits outside in your cell and producing. It's really pretty, I mean, remarkable technology. It's pretty amazing. And there are probably be a lot of other applications in the future for curing all sorts of different things, which would, now that it we was, have a delivery device.
0: It was designed. Wasn't uh, Moderna founded in order to use mRNA to treat cancer? Is that?
1: Yeah. Is that- I mean, that's what Moderna actually stands for, right? Mm-hmm. They just added some vowels. But it's mRNA, so that's why. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. So anyway, um, anyway, yeah, that's it's exactly, and so I think that that will be sort of the future of, of a lot. I think vaccines will change. I think they'll be a lot more efficient this way. And um, anyway, I think it's it's very promising. I mean, the the one thing, of course, we don't know is we don't know what this vaccine will do long term. We don't know how long the immunity lasts, and those sorts of things. And those you can't know until time passes. And then, of course long-term effects of anything, it's really hard to sort of determine and especially in large populations to, you know, there's more brain cancers or things like that. That's what people worry about who are who are Mm -hmm. hesitant for vaccines. And so kind of get back to your circling back to your initial question about vaccines, you know, what do I think? I mean, I think you should do what you think is best. And so that's what I believe. And I just personally believe that a vaccine makes sense. This is not a this is not a common cold. For some people it is, but you don't know if you're that person who is. If you're older or you have some sort of health problems, or you're exposed to it a lot or something like that, or you're worried about it, then I think it's ter- perfectly reasonable to go get the vaccine. If you're someone who said, yeah, I don't need it, I don't think you need it. If you're someone who's had COVID-19, I think it's probably a bad idea to get vaccinated. And that's counter contrary to what's yeah, being pushed by the CDC and FDA and uh, actually, I just had someone that would be on the next episode, an immunologist, and we talked about that. And he thinks it's totally crazy because, and he's someone who's actually fairly left a center from his politics, but he's like, this is a really bad strategy by the CDC and the FDA, encouraging people who have been infected and cleared it, which we know have been infected, to then go out and get vaccinated. Because in medicine, you have risk and benefit if we know that you have got full antibodies and you've got full immunity to something, which we know you get with a natural infection, we have studies that prove this. And actually your, inf- your immunity is probably as good, if not better than it is with a vaccine, which is should come as no shock to anybody. I mean, this is like, I don't know. Th- again, that's like common sense, but also it's like basic immunology. Um, that if you've got that immunity, then you you're provided no benefit from getting a vaccine. So if, if there's even a minuscule amount of harm, well, then you've actually done something that's, maybe even you'd argue it's unethical, right? If you've yeah. pushed something, right? Because if there's, it's going to provide no benefit, it's like, you know, if you come in and I don't know, you just come for a well check and I say, you know what, you look, you need some antibiotics. And so I give you some antibiotics and you've got no infection. Now, most likely you take the antibiotics and nothing's going to happen. But if you even like it just diarrhea or some up- stomach upset, well, I've caused you harm with absolutely providing no benefit. And so what I've done is wrong. Now that would be pretty minor, but what if you had anaphylaxis or some other thing, then mm-hmm. how would you justify doing that? If that happened? And so, I think, you know, that's where it comes down to risk-benefit. If you've had COVID-19, I think it's clearly a bad idea. Now, there are people who, all kinds of patients I run into who insist that they had COVID-19 in 2019 or, you know, in January of 2020, I'm almost certain they all had just colds or flus or something else because there's a bad flu season. But people just didn't get, you know, tested for that. You can always test for antibodies if you're not sure. There are other ways of figuring this out. But I think, you know, when it came to the government, they pushed the vaccinations because, and they pushed you even if you had it because they didn't want to bother slowing things down and like adding an extra step of getting tested.
0: All right, guys, taking a quick break here. Last week, I talked to you about uh, Tyler Colford and his new song, also known as Crypto Man. And uh, he's featured on a track with Intrinsic. It's called... First world problems. Basically, what it's doing is it's talking about you know, different concepts are woven throughout the track. You know, cancel culture, grifters, inflation, innovation, all kinds of different things. It's really, really interesting track. The video dropped this past week. It is amazing to actually the taxation is death mug that we sell in the Lions of Liberty store. Linesofliberty.store. You can pick yours up today. Makes the debut in the video. Going to link to the video on the show notes page. But please, please, on top of that, of course, like the video, share the video. Please go wherever you listen to your music, iHeartRadio, whichever one of these places where you listen to music. Please like and follow Crypto Man, and please like this song, share with your friends. And it's just an awesome song, guys. So I got a clip for you. Check it out. Clean
1: up. Clean up. Cost of when internet is free. cannot see. shake your
0: Yeah, so so just to, to touch on a couple of things you said there. And I, I think I think throughout this whole thing, we've really seen um, the elderly and people in nursing homes kind of be abused at, at the outset. We didn't do a good job protecting them. Um, obviously, things that happened in New York with Cuomo and Pennsylvania with Wolf, Governor Wolf, putting COVID-positive patients back in nursing homes was terrible. But also I've seen happen in nursing homes that people um, – you know residents there who had coronavirus, even recently, within the past like month. Then they came through with vaccines and just vaccinated everybody, and I think it's just trying to get those numbers up, trying to get that count up. When yeah, really, it, it, from my perspective, I'm not not a, not a doctor, but just from my uh, you know perspective, looking at it logically, like you said, I I, I love the uh, I'm a, a risk analyst by trade, so the cost benefit. You know, analysis. That's how I look at everything. And the, yeah, there's, there's no. I mean, you, you're 90 years old and you just beat COVID. Why would you get a vaccine? There's, there's no point. Um, but, but from a, uh, from my personal perspective on the vaccine, I'm not anti-vaccine. I have not been vaccinated. My wife hasn't been. Uh, and my daughter can't yet, and, and she won't be. But from our perspective, I mean, we are trying to have more kids, and we don't want to introduce another variable unknown variable into that into that equation um so that's that's our perspective on it both my parents have been vaccinated they're in their 70s which i think is a good decision on their part so i'm I'm not anti-vaccine but i yeah i I look at it just just like most things in life from a a uh, cost-benefit analysis
1: by governors whitmer and i don't want you to take all the credit to bad governor too with and certainly put vaccinations to people who had it. Yeah. But I think, you know, when it comes to, like, I think chickenpox is a good example because children are now vaccinated for chickenpox for the most part. But when they first introduced the vaccine, they would ask you, have you had chickenpox? Well, if you had chickenpox, we know that immunity lasts for life. You wouldn't vaccinate those people. And so it yeah. doesn't make any sense that we do that right now. And when you look at antibody levels and there's, there's no reason to do it. Again, it just introduced harm. The, the bigger question for parents and for, you know, like you guys looking at fertility questions, I mean, I, I mean, I would say probably the risk for that sort of thing is incredibly small, like infinitesimal. But, you know, you have to ask yourself, how would you sleep if you weren't able to get pregnant or something happened? Would you say, oh, it's because I, you know, the vaccine, whether it's what caused it or not, you know, those are things you have to deal with. And But those are rational decisions and rational sort of, you know calculations you make, like it's a risk benefit thing. Mm-hmm. And what you see as risk and benefit is different than what someone else does. And so I think, you know, at the margins, that's where it becomes tricky. You know, if you're 90 years old, I don't think there's much question that it, it's smart to get the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine if you've not had it, because your risk is obviously very high. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, that's the problem with with me oftentimes is that it's very nuanced. And so a lot people on like, you know, in social media, they don't want like a not down the middle, but some sort of like thoughtful answer because they want to. They want to like, you know, vaccines are killing everybody, or vaccines aren't killing anybody. You know, COVID's real, COVID 19's fake. That's sort of what gets the clicks and eyeballs. But in the reality, it's not like that. I, and I think that's when I talked to on my um, Facebook Live the last one about this Independence Day. I mean, that's kind of where I. That's why I think a lot of these things are important to to keep track yeah. of.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about that because that that was that was an excellent Facebook Live and a great message. Um, with what's, with what I'm seeing going on and with how, how our governors, uh, your governor Michigan Whitmer and governor Wolf in uh, Pennsylvania and Cuomo in New York, and there might be others, but what they're doing is setting these, um, thresholds for, uh, percentage of vaccinated. I think they're just saying over 18 or over 17% vaccinated. No, they're
1: saying all, of, they're saying everybody.
0: Is that what they're saying? Maybe yeah. Pennsylvania's that way too. Okay. Um, it, right now, I mean, really looking at what the numbers are, I think the numbers in Pennsylvania, and I haven't looked in a, maybe a week or two, but they were at like, I want to say sixty percent or so had received at least you know one dose, and of that, you know, fifty percent or maybe it was forty-five percent had received uh, the full the full two doses. And in Pennsylvania, the governor has made the threshold, I believe, seventy percent in order to roll back mask mandates. He set an arbitrary date in, uh, I think, late May, like May 23rd or something, where he's going to eliminate all other um, lockdown measures, but leave masks in in place if the 70% hasn't been hit. And I know similar things are happening in Michigan. But when you came out and said, and I'll let you elaborate on this, obviously, but June 1st, everyone's had an opportunity who wants to get vaccinated by that point, has had that opportunity and they've gotten it. People who haven't. They're taking that risk, like we just talked about, cost-benefit analysis. So, uh, wh- what's the what goes into your uh, thought process for why June first, and when you say open everything, and uh, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I mean the open anything is actually not very uh, nuanced. That's open everything. That's that, that's that's removing all restrictions. And and I mean, if you if let's just talk numbers. I just looked at the CDC site today just to get an idea. So, 153 million Americans have had at least one dose of the vaccine. So that's 46% of Americans. And 115 million are fully vaccinated, which is 35% almost. So over 18, so adults, 18 or older, 150.3 of those million actually are adults. So actually it's interesting, about almost 3 million are under 18 who've been vaccinated. But that puts us at 58% of Americans have had, of adults have had the vaccination. Those of the age of 65, which we know are the most at risk, it's almost 84%. So not surprisingly, people who are most at risk, who are most worried about this, have been vaccinated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, but again, there's nothing special about a vaccine vaccine causing immunity versus getting infected and getting immunity. It's immunity. It doesn't matter where you get it or how you get it. So you have to factor in the natural immunity. Now we don't really know exactly how many people have had it and cleared it. We have an estimate, and it's anywhere from, conservatively from twenty to thirty percent, probably varies by region, varies by you know age groups and those sorts of things. So we suspect it's about 25%. I mean, if you count those numbers in, we're looking at almost, almost 90% of those who are elderly, 65 and above, mm-hmm. and 68, 69% of those who are adults, and almost 60% of Americans have some sort of immunity. Now, that's probably not enough to cause the herd protection, or I'm, we're not going to use the term herd immunity, which is, I think, an improper term. But well, um, Why do
0: you think that's an improper term?
1: Well, herd immunity suggests that you won't ever have outbreaks, and you're going to actually have... it's It's... It's probably not, a very, it's not very accurate uh, when it comes to trying to figure out what the likelihood of outbreaks and things are. It's probably, herd protection is probably a better way of looking at it. that's uh, Dave Graham goes into that. it. It's maybe a nomenclature thing, but it's, I think, probably a more accurate idea that you're not going to get large outbreaks, but you're still going to have it present. Herd immunity suggests really that you don't have any sort of presence at all. Like polio, there's really no polio in the United States, right? That I'd say we have herd immunity for polio, mm-hmm. in actually most of the world. Uh, but with an endemic disease, you're just not really ever going to get herd per- herd immunity probably because you're going to have at any time you're going to have new people coming in who've had no immunity and you're going to have people who've lost immunity because if it's like other coronaviruses, it's not going to last forever. Uh, it's not unlike the chickenpox or something like that. Uh, but so the way I look at it right now, and it, you could even see this mid April, I was actually working at vaccine clinic, volunteered, volunteered a, volunteer, a volunteer vaccine clinic and jab people in the arm only had one person faint. It's pretty good. And, um, and uh, it was pretty clear by that night that we had turned a corner. Like it was an inflection point of no longer were we short of vaccines. We were short of people to put the vaccines in. And that had become more clear a couple of weeks later. And now there's without a doubt, I mean, you can go to like any drug store, you can go to grocery stores, whoever has a pharmacy they they have vaccines that they're willing to give you. It's not a matter of supply issues at now at this point. And again, we're just folks in the United States. I don't, we're not going to talk about other countries, which is an entirely different situation. So, right now, if you want immunity, you have two ways of getting. It. One is you get infected, or maybe you've previously been infected. Two, you get vaccinated. Those are your only two options. I mean, there's actually those are the only two options you ever have. But if you want immunity, you can get it, and you can get a full immunity before the end of this month, even if you just decide to do it. So, if you don't have immunity by the end of this month, it's a choice you've made. We're also at the point where One of the concerns early on was that we're going to overwhelm the healthcare systems. I've been, I work in the hospital all the time. We've had two huge surges in the state of Michigan. What often happens to these surges, they happen and they sort of just fade away. No matter what you do, you see this everywhere. And that's, you could have a long discussion about, you know, non-pharmacologic interventions and, you know, masking lockdowns and stuff. But either way, no matter what you do, it kind of just comes and goes. The hospitals get really full. Sometimes you have to cancel surgeries. You have to cancel some sort of procedures, but it kind of goes away and ebbs and flows. And we're at the point now, especially when you look at those numbers. I mean, we're guessing at least 65% of all Americans, 60% have some sort of immunity to SARS-CoV-2. There's not that much fuel left, especially at the rate people are getting vaccinated at this point. And I'm sure a lot of kids will get vaccinated with some parents will make that choice. We're gonna get to the point pretty soon where we're not gonna hit to where we can't really overwhelm the healthcare system. In fact, I say we're probably already there now. We never really got overwhelmed anywhere. We're not like India. We don't have people dying because they don't have oxygen. I mean, it's really bad there because they don't have the resources. They're not as rich. I think, you know, Jason Sapeman always talks about, you know, it sucks to be poor. You know, we're not yeah, poor.
0: And, and their population is just so concentrated. I mean, it's, sure. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's going to spread more. And, but I think, you know, the, the biggest problem is they just don't have any, they don't have basic you know resources to take care of people to get most people over this. Well, we don't have that problem. Nowhere has it been like we're short of ventilators. We had all sorts of plans in place which i think was rational to say what do we do with if it gets really bad we're going to convert our operating rooms to uh to icus we're going to convert our surgical centers to icus we got ventilators there we can run these things people figured out ways it's actually really interesting if you go on youtube you can see it, anesthesiologists who figured out ways to run three uh to use a ventilator to ventilate for three people at the same time like it's actually combined so there, their workarounds people had we never even came close to needing that right trump ordered all those ventilators had ford motor company and gm making you know they want to get justify their, I don't yeah. know, their corporate w- welfare. So they, you know, got all these built all these ventilators. I remember never C- had to-
0: Cuomo asked Trump for some just right absurd amount of ventilators, like- and Trump's like, "No, you're you're not getting them
1: Right, and and we never needed them, right? They never yeah. even used all the ventilators in New York. Never came close, partly because we realized that it didn't help um, for mm-hmm. the most part. But anyway, I, you know, at this point, I think it'd be hard to argue that we're ever going to get overwhelmed in this country with COVID in any part of the country. If that's the case. Then the only justification for lock, you know, not having uh, everything open up, I don't know. I don't understand what it would be because if you want protection, you got it. Vaccines, you know, are highly effective. Uh, we know that if you've had COVID, you're going to be safe uh, for the most part. And again, if we're getting to the point where we're talking about lightning strike scenarios where it's that those are the odds, I think you know you just have to accept the fact that the risk for driving around is probably more than dying from COVID. I mean, if that's the case, yeah. it doesn't make any sense, right, to mm-hmm. to keep everything locked down. And so that's why I think June 1st gives everyone a reasonable time to get everything they want done. And if that's the case, then just say, you know what? We're all adults. And if we're not adults, we're, you know, adults move us around, do things for us. But at, at this point, I think it, you should be open because kids really, they don't they don't get so sick that we have to worry, I think, a ton about it. Um, not to say no one worries, but... Anyway, I, that's, why, that's why I say that. I, I don't see any justification for keeping things closed down at this point. And I think when governors use the, the 70% rate, it's totally arbitrary, and it does not at all take into account the fact that there's natural immunity within the community. Uh, yeah. And so that's, and that's why it's a bad idea. And it's why also vaccine passports, aside from being a civil liberty issue, are also not very useful because they don't, they don't even capture the full you know, immunity level in the, the community, which is what you really care about.
0: Yeah, well, there's vaccine passports and there's this new thing being floated, which I think uh, the two New York baseball teams have talked about this. I've heard it talk about other places. I think some NBA teams are doing it where they have a vaccinated and an unvaccinated section in uh, in the ballpark, which to me kind of is pretty anti-science because why would you want to put all of the unvaccinated people together? That's just promoting spread if there is any, right? Wouldn't you want to mix in some vaccinated people?
1: That's actually, good point. I hadn't thought about that. That's actually really that's a really good point. But again, it, that just goes to the point that it doesn't, it's not based on science, right? At this point, we're just arguing about, I mean, I think it's, it's the drawdown, right? It, the hardest thing to do is once you've put a protection in place is to say, you know what? We don't need this anymore. For right now, for instance, a great example is in when, for us in our medical clinics, we have to take new temperature checks every day. I don't know how many businesses still do this. I'm guessing most of them don't do it.
0: Mine, mine does, yeah.
1: Yeah, but the uh, our, our Occupational Safety Health Administration, MyOSHA in Michigan, requires that of all healthcare facilities. We know that temperature checks don't really catch anything. I mean, it's not really of any sort of use. We've known this for a long time, much like cleaning surfaces doesn't make much difference besides keep your place cleaner, yet we... Yet, once you set those in place, if you're a bureaucrat, you've got to say, well, you got to be a hundred percent sure that you're not making it, that if something happens, you're gonna say, Why'd you remove that restriction? Obviously, it was saving lives. You did, you know. And so that's gonna be the hardest part about this, people just walking it back. And but I think you know, the nice thing is I think people are really just truly fed up with it. And I think you've even seen people on the left who are also tired of it too. And you know, thinking people, they're just like, This is just it doesn't make any sense wearing a mask while you're you know hiking in the woods. It never made any sense to me to have a mask while you're outside, unless you're making out with someone. But then why would you (laughs) want a mask?
0: Exactly. It never made any sense to me at all. But I've I've also seen, and I don't know how prevalent this is, this might just be some very far left people who say they're they're reluctant to take their mask off, even outside, because they don't want to be looked at as maybe a Trump supporter or something, walking around without a mask on. So that's, I mean, that's the the craziness we're we're dealing with now. Yeah. Uh, so a couple a couple more quick topics that I wanted to get your opinion on uh, with regards to COVID. So, at home test kits. Do you have any idea why we don't have these already? Other other than just the FDA just fumbling and not being able to to approve them, or is there some other medical reasons why we don't have quick at home COVID tests or SARS CoV two tests? I should say. I
1: would say the main reason for that is the FDA and the its unwillingness to. Uh, to relinquish sort of control over the, the testing process. They have, a, as many people may know, it, that the FDA no longer, its role is mainly safety. It's actually more efficacy, which means how effective something works or doesn't work. And so the, the most expensive part of drug development is actually not most of the testing. It's the very last phase of testing where you have to prove that it actually works and you have to use, you know, how well does that blood pressure medicine work or how well does... The vaccine work. I mean, we knew these vaccines were effective a long time ago. Really, it it was just delayed months and months and months, which you could argue tens of not hundreds of thousands of people died because of that, because the FDA insisted on these sort of other, you know, phases of the trial, which didn't really matter. Uh, but anyway, that aside, it, the the testing issue is mainly because of the FDA not allowing it. I think secondarily, it's probably the medicals the medical community too, and there's a lot of hesitancy within the medical community to allow people to do testing on their own because there's a concern that they will misinterpret it or they'll they'll have they'll get information that is not accurate like you know if you did the nasopharyngeal swabs i don't know if anyone's ever had one i have not personally but i've seen them done and my kids have had them done where they just you know the the q-tip goes up like into you know people say you know rubs on your cerebellum and then you pull it out and you test it but uh if you don't do that properly it doesn't work and so there's a concern with like spit tests or whatever that they just people would just interpret imp- improperly I mean home pregnancy tests people think it's like a common thing but it was it was a prescription testing device for a, for a long time it wasn't until I don't know was it the 80s maybe or late 70s where they actually were allowed to be sold over the counter because you know it's really hard to see a plus symbol or a negative symbol if you're if you're not trained in medicine I'm maybe they're more complicated they had two lines or one line but you know what I mean there's there was a uh, there's just a hesitancy to in this in the, in our highly regulated medical system to allow people to interpret tests on their own because they may get things wrong. And I, I deal with this. I'm in the medical state medical society, and we see this all the time where people don't want certain innovations to happen because it's going to, people are going to have not too much power, but there's certainly good. There's a concern they may misinterpret or they may miss things that they would be picked up by a professional. And there may be some truth in that, but it probably stifles a lot of innovation, things that might be more helpful in the general, you know, generally than it would be uh, to protect people.
0: Yeah. I mean, the big, yeah, the biggest thing to me that I think was fumbled and you could blame Trump, but it's probably more just the bureaucracy and the unwillingness to hand that over, like, like you were just talking about, but when things were really bad, you talk about last fall or into the winter um, with, like I said, that was our worst, worst run up with deaths and hospitalizations. I mean, if you could just, even if people, we're only getting it right half the time. Um, if you were able to put those tests in their hands, that would have helped tremendously. Because I mean, you factor that on top of people who, um, you know, even if it was a false test, automatically you're you know being more cautious yourself, you're yourself isolating, and and, and you're taking yourself out of uh you know out of possibility of circulating it. So I, I think that was just a, a huge fumble. The other big one was at the beginning. When the FDA would not approve the original test and they waited for for their own test, right? Which then was faulty, right? When they rolled it <laughs> <Yeah>. out.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, from a regulatory standpoint, that's where the problem is. And you're absolutely right. I think, you know, if people had the ability to do it at their home, they're gonna be able to, you know, my wife has it. Maybe I should test myself every day to make sure I don't get it. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, trying to stay away from her, whatever. And you're gonna have you you're definitely gonna stop the spread a lot faster than if if you'd done something like and had that. A, ability to use it. And as we've seen, I mean, most of those rapid tests are actually still pretty accurate. It's not 99% or whatever the PCR test might be for picking up, you know, particles and stuff. And I don't want to go into talk about cycle times. You listen to one of my shows. I talk about that. And we, I certainly understand the the concern there. But um, as far as the sensitivity, the rapid tests are still pretty good. I mean, the my wife gives, does them all the time because now in Michigan, they have to require all the high school athletes to get tested weekly. Uh, even if you know you're playing some High impact sport like golf. And um they and they're actually she has had tons of positive tests, and when they do the PCR the confirmatory, it's always positive. And so they, they haven't had any false you negative. Know, that doesn't mean that there are false positives doesn't mean there aren't any, but mm-hmm. it's still pretty accurate tests, and so it would have been a very helpful tool because it would have been much better than 50%. It would probably have been still about 90% or so.
0: Right. All right, just one more question here. I I think uh the fear that a lot of libertarians have, a lot of people who just uh, you know lean towards liberty in general, you know, there's been this infringement on our rights with lockdowns. They were very slow to be uh, you know rolled back. A lot of them still aren't rolled back in many states. And then with masks, you know, a lot of states still have some sort of mask mandate. And the fear, one fear that I have is that they've been normalized to a certain extent that. I think some people just voluntarily on their own are going to continue to wear them. And I think my bigger, if they want to do it, that's them. They can, they can do that. Um, my bigger concern would be when we look at flu seasons in the future, masks becoming a standard thing every fall and winter that when kids are going to school or in the workplace, or you're around people, or you're at a sporting event, that you have to wear a mask. Do you think that's something that'll happen? And what's what's your opinion on that?
1: I think that sort of prediction is really hard to make. Um, I think
0: that's what I do. I make wild I predictions. Know. Then, then if it happens, yeah. then I look like a genius, right?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, and I I say that just, uh, because I really don't know where we're going. I mean, I think I was just on another show yesterday or two days ago, and I really feel like we're rounding third base and we're heading towards home, and we're just about you know we're just about done with this thing. And I you know call a lot of these people who are insisting that we keep everything the same as like the third base coach, but we just need to blow through the signal and just head home. And so right right now, oh <laughs> it's a baseball analogy. Uh, but when it comes to mask usage, I think it's a lot like if it's cold out, right? Like it's 50 degrees or 40 degrees. It makes sense to wear a sweater. And so you wear a sweater, but you don't take a sweater with you in July, right? Because it's the likelihood of you actually needing it is is pretty much zero, right? Or it's like wearing taking an umbrella when there's no cloud in the sky. Uh so it may be that it gets normalized where we say you know what sort of culturally we accept the fact that if you're sick or you're coming with a cold or something or you might have the flu you're feeling kind of under the weather maybe you do wear a mask around I mean that seems pretty rational to me it seems pretty normal and I think that's actually probably a good thing to do you know how much it helps and stuff we can argue about that but probably it's a good idea if you're going to go what, out That's
0: what a lot of Asian cultures Previously, did right? I think that was kind of misinterpreted, right? That they would wear them strategically. If you were sick, you would wear a mask, and it kind of got interpreted over here that they always wear masks yeah, all the time. Right. That's how they stopped it,
1: right? Well, and I think you know there are other reasons to wear masks, like it's smoggy, and you don't want to get, you don't want to breathe mm-hmm. as much, you know, smog. So the there, there are all sorts of reasons. So I think it's possible that we'll get to a point where we're going to be wearing them at time to- at specific times, like you said, strategically. I I don't believe. That we're going to have it required, like, oh, it's November, it's flu season time, everyone put on their masks and you know, don't stand next to people and oh, better not get married in December because we can't have weddings. Or, you know, if you're in DC, you can't dance at your wedding. <laughs> I don't think we're gonna have those sorts of those sorts of rules. I don't know what's gonna happen in the hospital. I mean, everything in the regulatory standpoint from a, the healthcare, it's just weird. And so we have lots of things that just persist. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of rules that what happens is people just don't pay attention to. And and as you know, as a libertarian. The the rule only matters if people actually are following them, right? I mean, yeah. if everyone decided they're not going to wear masks tomorrow, well, no one would be wearing masks, right? You can have there aren't enough cops in the world, there aren't there aren't enough people, and they probably if that many people decide they're not wearing masks, well, no one's going to enforce it. I mean, no one's going to be at the store if ten people walk in, there, none of them have masks on. But chances are that person at the door is like, "Yeah, it's stupid. I'm not going to you know tell you to leave my store or something like that." And so. A lot of these rules will kind of go away. I, this happens all the time in the hospital, even we're highly regulated and probably shouldn't even be saying this, but there are there are rules that get imposed and they're followed for a while and then people say, yeah, that's dumb. And so we're just not going to do it anymore. Yeah. And and they just don't do it. And then you know the regulator comes in and said, why are you not doing X, Y, Z? And so then you say, okay, well, so you start doing it again. And then after a while, people are saying, yep, it's dumb still. And so we're going to stop doing it again. And so there are all kinds of things that happen like that whether it goes from jaywalking like everyone does, or, you know, you don't jaywalk across the freeway, but you can do it across an empty street, right? I mean, there's, there's people have common sense and they have certain levels of risk and benefit. They sort of, whatever it might be. And, and I think that's, I think that's what will happen. I, I do not believe that we're going to be stuck in this lockdown. I think we're very close to being over. We're lucky. We live in a federalized system where we have various experiments as far as, you know, uh, you know, what sort of measures people are doing to try and prevent control spread. And you see, that there's probably not much difference, right? <laughs> I think it's sort of pretty random what's going mm-hmm. on. And uh, you see people... I don't care what your politics are, but if you see people who are just going out and doing their business normally, you kind of want to be that person, right? I mean, you don't want to continue living living the nightmare if you can avoid it. There are some people who, of course, insist on wearing the mask like it is a mega hat. And it's, just, it's very similar, I think, as far as a symbol. But I think that will go away soon. And you, know, you can just eventually... The cognitive dissonance sort of works its way out and you say, well, you know, the liberal saved us and so I can take off my mask now or something like that. I mean, that's what will probably happen because people are just not going to want to do this forever.
0: Well, I think I think you hit on a a good point there talking about if you see people living their life, you're going to want to do that, too. And I think one thing we're seeing, one thing that is driving this discussion from the left for vaccine passports is you have these uh, progressives looking at a state like Florida, all these people that are out there, you know, living their life, just Texas doing whatever they want. And nothing bad is happening. I mean, like you said, SARS, it's basically the same everywhere. So there's not a bad impact. Uh, I mean, it's kind of leveled off across the country. But uh, when it comes to Vaccine passports, it looks like the left is wants or I don't know if they will do this. They want to try to use it as a okay, well, we're vaccinated, we can go out there, but anyone who's not, you have to stay, you have to stay at home. We can have the fun, you can watch us have fun. And uh, I, I don't know if that'll happen. I really pray that it doesn't. And I, I really agree with uh, your friend Justin Namash, he was one of the first people to come out um, from the Liberty side. When the vaccine passport discussion was just heating up, and really pointing out the the flaws and the how dangerous they are, not only for if they were government implemented from the public sector, but also if the private sector does it, that's not something as you know liberty lovers as libertarians that you know, we should be getting behind. Um, it's it's not a. Uh, It's not a a free market idea. And it can easily, like we've seen, much like with social media, when you have uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, the Googles of the world that regulate free speech sort of as these uh, private enterprises that act as arms of the government – that can easily happen with the vaccine passports with like in New York, a private company like IBM creates the vaccine passports and then the government can say, well, that's not us. That's this private company just offering the service. And then they just mine the database and pull all the data out.
1: Well, I, I and I would just add that as much as I'll try and be optimistic here because I think it's important to point out how much better the world is in some ways. And it's not as doom and gloom as we may think. So I think, you know, just recently I've been looking at this stuff with Facebook and Apple fighting each other, right, through privacy with data collection and metadata mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. And you see – now, I don't know what the the ideological breakdown is of people who are in favor of more privacy or less privacy, but you're seeing it's like 96% of people who get iPhones choose not to have data tracked. So I think that suggests to me most people don't really want that. And uh, and so I I I tend to think – and those are got to be all political parts of the spectrum, right? But most Americans do not want to have them their whereabouts and all their private things collected and held by whether it's a, you know, this is private companies, but they certainly don't want the government either. So I'm much more favorable. I mean, I think, you know, bureaucrats want to do what they want to do. And, and I don't think that they will have much, they're not going to have much uh, ability to really push it forward. Because like I said, I think whether they want it or not, I think COVID's kind of coming to an end here and, you know, it's going to be more and more evident as we get further into June and July, when the the amount of people who have it, or the amount of really problems in the hospitals, is just less and less. And so, I mean, mm. I, I mean, already you're seeing all the stories are not about the United States, right? Now they're all about other parts of the world because it's kind of we thank thankfully to the vaccine and the natural immunity. I mean, if it weren't for the vaccine, whether you like it or not, as a libertarian, that causes our immunity levels to go up really quickly. And it probably saved us a good two, three years from having to deal with these, you know, continuous waves that just would keep coming and going all the time. And the impetus for these, these lockdowns, these rules, has really gone away. And that's largely because of the vaccine, you know, whether, you, again, whether you like it or not.
0: Yeah. Okay, Eric, uh, wrapping things up here. I just want to give you some time to, to plug your, your podcast, to plug anything else you're working on, and uh, let the people know where they can find that podcast.
1: Yeah, well, I would appreciate you can check me out on Twitter. I'm not super active on there at The Paradox Show. And Paradox is spelled D-O-C-S, so P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S, and it's theparadox.com. You can find my website with access to all my shows. I've had 127, 128 coming out. This is going to be on COVID as well. I try not to talk about COVID all the time because it. all I do is talk about it in the OR. I have nurses ask me all the time what they should do, whether they should be vaccinated. It's Actually, having podcasts, it makes you sort of a semi-expert, and so people want, want your opinion all the time. And I always have to say, I you know I don't know. So sometimes I do know or have a good idea. But we talk about this third-party healthcare system, the insanity of it, and the really great thing about it that I think about the show that has been good for me is when I started in 2018, I was very pessimistic about the health U.S. healthcare system. I thought it was you know going the wrong way. It was third-party payers, government payers uh, were all colluding against physicians and against patients, and it was we're in trouble from a uh, from a quality standpoint, from a payment standpoint, but I have met so many people who are disruptive to the system. So many people have found alternatives to getting around things. Whether it's a Keith Smith at Oklahoma City Surgery Center, whether it's direct primary care physicians, whether it's people who are finding ways of uh, getting around, basically, you know, setting up free market uh, ER centers or uh, telehealth. There are all kinds of people doing really cool, innovative things, and so there's a lot of energy in solving these problems because, really, you know, as you probably since you're a libertarian, you're not going to think that the, the solutions are rarely coming from legislation from the state capital or the nation's right. capital. Solutions generally come from uh, the bottom up things we can't even imagine or understand or it, it begin to expect. And yet that's where the that's what's happening. So it's been a very encouraging show. I think it, you've learned some interesting things, whether you're into medicine, because about half my listers are physicians, half aren't. And so I think it's a great way to get some things we um information. I've done some stuff on history, on Force organ harvesting, pretty much about anything, brain death, anything you can think of. Uh, so I'd encourage people to come by and check it out. And thank you again for letting me become the, to hit finish the triathlon here on the, <laughs> <laughs> the freedom Friday show uh, to, to sque- the clean sweep here of the Alliance of Liberty podcast network.
0: Yeah. You're one of the few that's, it's been on all three. I think there's uh one or two other ones, but it's, it's been great having you on Eric. Great. Uh, getting to talk with you. Keep up the great work, and uh, you know you're saying that you've become an, an expert in this by doing all these podcasts. Um, you know, I think the perspective you bring is it's necessary for uh, for the the you know just the the general discourse on social media that gets so toxic, and for people to see your opinion. So keep
1: it up. I appreciate. It. Thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Hope you all enjoyed that interview on finding freedom. Another awesome guest. And hopefully you guys also have subscribed to the Lions of Liberty podcast, and you're getting all three of our unique shows in your uh, little listening device delivered to your ears. Um, If you haven't, please do that. Just go to your app, you know how to do it, and subscribe. You can also leave us a five-star review and a nice comment. We would prefer if you did it on Apple Podcasts, but anywhere you can on the internet, please leave us a positive comment. Also, The three shows that we have, uh, Monday's show with uh, Mark Clare, our flagship program, our longest running program, and uh, on Wednesday, Electric Liberty Land with Brian McWilliams. Um, Those guys have been killing it, and I am so excited about the direction of Lions of Liberty. Um, We're seeing some awesome numbers right now, and we're going to continue to grow, so it's great stuff. If you want to support us, we would love that too. Please go to patreon.com slash lines of liberty. You can uh, support us for as little as a couple bucks, or if you get in at a higher level, you get merchandise and access to us and all the way up to, you can advertise on the show or get to even produce a show. So check it all out. Patreon.com slash lines of liberty and If you haven't checked it out yet, please consider checking out the Lions of Liberty store where we have some awesome t-shirts. We have a Taxation is Death t-shirt with an awesome design. We have a Wax On Tax Off t-shirt. And we're always coming up with new ideas and adding new t-shirt designs to the store. Check that out at lionsofliberty.store. And if you're in the pride, you get a discount on anything you buy in the store. So you do both of those things and you win. That's all I got, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up, and the fire is the liberty burning.